And we, we continue our series, and uh, God is our refuge in Psalms. We're going to be uh, looking at Psalm 91 today, and Nancy is going to come up and help us reading. Psalm 91. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely he will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. If you say, the Lord is my refuge, and you make the most high your dwelling, no harm will overtake you. No disaster will come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him, for he acknowledges my name. He will call on me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble I will deliver him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Nancy. Well, it's such a beautiful psalm. It's a psalm that's hope-filled and optimistic and strengthening. It's the kind of psalm to have with your breakfast every day. Uh, if, like me, this morning, to be honest, I woke up for some reason feeling rather anxious and stressed, and Psalm 91 is a great psalm to read over your porridge, as I had this morning, if that's how you're feeling. Uh, it's a, the great declaration of God being our refuge. It's such a beautiful psalm. We don't have any title or author given to us this psalm. A lot of the psalms have a title. Lots of, us, lots of the psalms tell us who wrote the psalm. When that isn't the case, the rabbis, Jewish rabbis, tell us that it, you can take uh, the previously named author of a psalm as being the most likely author of the psalm which hasn't got the title of an author on it. And the previous psalm, Psalm 90, it tells us is written by Moses. So we can't be dogmatic about this, but it might be that Psalm 91 is also written by Moses. And it, in a sense, it feels quite mosaic. It feels like a psalm that's been written by somebody of long experience of what God is like, which is true for Moses. And it feels like it could be written by Moses in light of all that God had led the people of Israel through. So think of the story of Moses, personal tribulations of his own life, and then 40 years leading the people out of slavery into freedom, but all the ups and downs of the wilderness wanderings. It feels like this is a kind of psalm which could be written in response to that sort of experience. It's a great psalm. But it's a psalm that also raises questions for us because it seems to offer a blanket protection from any kind of harm for God's people. And the reality is that we know that bad stuff happens to good people, and bad stuff happens even to God's 
people. So what do we do with that? So what I want to do with this, as we look at this psalm this morning, is, is look at three things. I want us to see how, how the psalm helps us to wrestle with things which are theologically complex. I want us to see from the psalm how we need to learn to interpret Scripture, interpret what the Bible says by what the Bible says. We interpret Scripture by Scripture. And then I want to bring us to, again, see how God really is our refuge. That's, God willing, what we're going to be doing as we look at this psalm this morning. So, Lord, would you help us? Well, thank you for this amazing Scripture, which is such a comfort to us, is such a strength. It does speak of your refuge. And I pray, Lord, that we would learn from your word as we were encouraged by reading Psalm 119 earlier in our service. Thank you. Your word instructs us. It is the light to our path. And I pray that we'd see that through this beautiful psalm. Amen. Okay, so first of all, let's think about how this psalm th- helps us to wrestle with things which are theologically complex. So a literal reading, if you were to read this psalm literally, would suggest that God's people have superhuman powers, which means that we are protected from any kind of harm. So verse 10 says it, No harm will overtake you, no disaster will come near your tent. And you read that literally, what does it mean? It means that no disaster, no harm is going to come to you. No harm is going to come to you or your house. And there are millions of people around the world who read the Scripture that way. And there are different... um, sort of uh, schools of theology, given sometimes different names which would represent this way of reading the Bible. Sometimes uh, it's called the Word of Faith movement, or more often we just refer kind of shorthand to those who believe the prosperity gospel. When I was in Zimbabwe a couple of weeks ago, there were lots of huge billboards up over the uh, roads in Harare, uh, advertising various prophets and apostles, uh, with lots of promises attached to them. And there was one prominent such figure in Harare who is saying this year is 2024, 24. There are 12 tribes of Israel, there are 12 disciples, that's 24. So 2024 is the year of blessing. But the way in which to get your blessing, the way to get your Psalm 91 blessing, is by giving to this man's ministry, and it has to have a 24 in it. So if you're poor, give $24. If you've got more money, don't give $1,000, give 1024 just keep getting the 24 in there because that's how you're going to get the blessing of God. That's the kind of thing that we have to deal with sometimes in this way of interpreting what Scripture says. Now, that kind of theology doesn't just happen in an African context. It can also affect us because in our Western context, we tend to be enslaved to the idols of comfort. And so our assumption is that no harm ever should befall us. And if harm does befall us, we tend to be rather offended by that. So we might not have the same theology, but practically how we feel, we can feel the same way. And the problem is that life doesn't just work out constant blessing all the time. That doesn't just seem to be how life is. When I was in Harare, I went to have lunch with a friend of mine, Scott Marks, who leads a movement of churches called Disciple Nations in Zimbabwe and Mozambique and other countries in Southern Africa. And uh, just an hour before I got to see him, he had been received a diagnosis that he's got blood cancer. That was a bit of a shock to walk into that situation. When I left Harare, had a few hours spare between the night flight home and in Johannesburg. So I met up with some pastors and friends of mine in Johannesburg, had a great time with them. One of my friends in Johannesburg, Greg Tate, he 
reminded me about the time when he, with his teenage son, was in traffic and somebody came up to his window with a gun demanding that he hand over his phone. Managed to get away, no harm done. Another pastor in that group, a guy called Temba, not so fortunate. One time he was in traffic in Johannesburg. Guys came up to his window, no questions asked, just shot him twice, pulled him out of the car, left him for dead. So Scott and GT and Temba, these are good men. These are godly men. These are men involved in pastoring churches, leading movements, discipling people, doing good things amongst the poor, serving those in need. And yet these things have happened. So what is going on here? Is When bad things happen, is the problem with us or is the problem with God? And prosperity gospel teaching would say that the problem is never at God's end. That if harm befalls you, then it's a you problem, not a God problem. God has promised it. No harm should come close to you. You need to believe it. Scott, Greg, Timber. Now, if in this psalm we can see why you might reach that conclusion, because there seems to be a sort of conditionality in the promises of blessing. Verse 9, if you say the Lord is my refuge, if you say the Lord is my refuge, verse 10, no harm will overtake you. If you dwell, if you make the most high your dwelling, no harm will overtake you. So, if you're making the most high your dwelling, no harm will overtake you. If harm overtakes you, does that mean that you're not dwelling? Does that mean that you're not really in the presence of God in the way that you should be? Is it a you problem that harm befalls you? Is it because you're not dwelling enough? If harm overtakes you, if you experience sickness or job loss or family crisis, or if harm comes near your tent, you get a leaking roof, packed up boiler, broken car. Is it because the problem's never at God's end? Is it actually you because you're not dwelling in God's presence as you should be? That's the question that is raised. Now, I want to say to you that to think that way is an incorrect reading of Scripture. It doesn't do justice to the whole counsel of God. And to illustrate this, I want to take just one aspect of harm, and it's the most obvious one, the one of sickness. If we're afflicted by illness, by sickness, why is that? Is that because we're not dwelling in the presence of God as we should be, or might it be that there are other things going on? How do we interpret Psalm 91 in the light of the realities? How about my friend Scott, most, in some ways the most impressive godly man I've ever known, struck down with breast cancer? What is, not breast cancer, <laughs> blood cancer. Just clarify that. Forgive me, Scott. Blood cancer. What is going on there? My friend Andrew Wilson, uh, 10 years ago, wrote a blog post titled The Problem with the Problems Never at God's End. Um, and it's, it's a post that's stuck with me for these 10 years because I thought it was so powerful. Andrew says this, The biblical reality is that sometimes the reason people aren't healed is to do with us. Sometimes it's to do with God. Sometimes it's to do with both, and sometimes we don't know. The biblical reality is that sometimes the reason people aren't healed is to do with us. Sometimes it's to do with God. Sometimes it's to do with both, and sometimes we don't know. Now, to illustrate that, there's 12 scriptures that Andrew gives, just worth running through these. 12 reasons why, biblically speaking, some people are sick. 
Some people are sick for these reasons. First reason, the people praying for them have insufficient faith. It's what Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 17. The reason you can't sort this situation out is because you haven't got enough faith. So sometimes the problem is our problem, that we are not praying with the kind of faith that we need. That's why we're not seeing people get healed. The second reason, though, is that sometimes the people praying actually need to really pray and maybe fast as well. Not just a perfunctory, Lord, heal them prayer. Sometimes there's a real labor in prayer that has to be entered into to see God break through. So sometimes the reason we're not seeing healing is because we're not praying enough, not praying as hard as we should be. The third reason might be because there's just stuff going on behind the scenes that we don't know about. And the classic example of this is the book of Job, the first two chapters of Job, where we have this strange glimpse into heavens and Satan appears before God and there's this sort of negotiation going on about what's going to happen to Job and Job knows nothing about what's happening in this heavenly council chamber but something is going on and that might be happening and we just don't know because by definition those things are hidden from us. The fourth reason sometimes people aren't healed is because God is going to reveal his glory through their sickness. John 11, the story of Lazarus, which we were looking at just before Christmas. Jesus allows, it seems, Lazarus to get sick and to die. And Jesus says the reason this is going to happen is so that God will be glorified. Because, of course, then Jesus is going to call Lazarus from the dead. The fifth reason why people might not get healed, and this is a hard one, is because God sometimes, why, we don't know, creates people that way. Exodus 4, the Lord said to him, who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? don't always understand that, but sometimes that's the Lord's purpose. Sometimes, and again, this is another difficult one, sometimes people are sick because of divine discipline. Paul writes to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 11, and says that some of them are sick. Some of them even died because they are abusing the Lord's supper. And that seems to be particularly in terms of the rich taking advantage of the poor. That seems to be what going, is going on in Corinth. And actually God is disciplining them through sickness. It's quite a challenging passage, that one. Sometimes people are sick because you just need to change your lifestyle. Paul writes to his friend Timothy, stop, this is the best verse in the Bible, stop, stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. You might be sick because of your lifestyle. And it's changing. Sometimes people are sick because they haven't come to me and asked me to pray for them. James says, come to the elders. Get them to pray for you, anoint you. Sometimes people aren't healed because those of us praying for them just don't have the gift of healing. God gives gifts. Some people have the gift of healing. Some people are able to pray for those who are sick and far more often see the sick made well than others, others of us do. The Apostle Paul clearly experienced sickness. He says in Galatians chapter 4 that, as you know, it's because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. So it seems in that case that God actually allowed Paul to be sick because that was the way that Paul was going to preach to the Galatians, which he wouldn't have done if he hadn't been sick. So God uses God's sickness for the advance of the gospel. There's also an indication that Paul perhaps needed his pride crushed, 2 Corinthians 12, in order to keep me from being 
conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Sometimes God allows us to be sick in order to humble us. And sometimes we just don't know. So to Timothy, Paul, again writing to his friend Timothy, says, Erastus stayed in Corinth and I left Trophimus ill in Miletus. Why was Trophimus ill? Why didn't he get healed? We don't know. He just was. Paul left him behind. That's life. The biblical reality is that sometimes the reason people aren't healed is to do with us. Sometimes it's to do with God. Sometimes it's to do with both. And sometimes we just don't know. So, when we read Psalm 91, it's probably a mistake to take it as a blanket statement. So, secondly, what we need to do is learn to interpret Scripture in the way that we should. Now, a really important issue for us, perhaps a fundamental issue for us, especially at our cultural moment, is to believe in the authority of Scripture. That the Bible is God's word to us, that it is true, it is reliable. And this is how God makes himself known to us. And the primary way in which we are fed and grow and learn as Christians, the primary way that we grow in our discipleship is by coming under the word of God, by believing this book to be true, reading it, applying it, living it. And that's a huge fight in our culture because there are lots of things in this book which clash with what our culture would value and teach. And so a huge issue for us is to believe, accept, practice the authority of Scripture. But even if that's the case, we still have to learn how to interpret Scripture. And Psalm 91 is a great case study in that because of the way in which Satan used Psalm 91. So we turn to the New Testament, we get to the Gospel of Luke, and we read about the devil trying to tempt Jesus. And this is what it says in Luke chapter 4. The devil led him, led Jesus to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, this is the challenge. Prove it. Prove it. Prove you're the Son of God. Throw yourself down from here, for it is written in Psalm 91, and I quote, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Come on, Jesus. If you say you're the Son of God, this is what the prosperity teachers would tell you. Read Psalm 91. You can jump off here. You'll be fine. Prove it. And Jesus' response is, it is said, Scripture, Deuteronomy 6.16, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Now what we see in this encounter is that Satan applies a literal reading of Psalm 91 to Jesus. This is what Psalm 91 says, Jesus. Don't you believe it? But then Jesus uses another scripture, Deuteronomy 6.16, to correct a wrong application of scripture. The scripture, Psalm 91, is true, but used in the way that Satan uses it, it's false. How we interpret Scripture is essential. So, two principles for how we interpret Scripture. The first is we're meant to interpret Scripture faithfully. What we see in this story is that Satan uses Scripture manipulatively. Satan is using Scripture to try and trick Jesus. Satan's using Scripture to try and advance his own agenda. 
And if we use Scripture to advance our own, our own agenda, if we use it for our personal gain, not for God's glory, we're falling into a significant theological mess. So we need to interpret Scripture faithfully. And the way we do that is by interpreting Scripture by Scripture. The reality is that if you take any verse or any passage in the Bible in isolation, you can make it mean pretty much anything that you want it to mean. So another example from Psalm 91. Psalm 91 verse 4. He will cover you with his feathers. So God's got feathers. You could build a whole theology around that verse, around the featheriness of God. Now clearly... God doesn't have actual feathers. This is metaphor. This is analogy. It's poetic language. It's talking about what God does. This imagery, a beautiful imagery of God bringing us under his wings like a a mother hen brings her chicks under her wings. That protection, that covering, that's what it's talking about. But if you take any verse in isolation, you can make it mean anything that you want it to mean. So what we need to do, we 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 need to know the scriptures, not just a scripture, We mustn't fall into the trap of just having our particular favorite promise verse and failing to interpret that in the light of the rest of Scripture. We need to to know the Scriptures. And what we see Jesus do in Luke 4 is Jesus uses Scripture to interpret Scripture. When Satan uses Psalm 91 falsely, Jesus uses another Scripture to correct him. Yes, Psalm 91 does say that, but Deuteronomy 6.16 says this, and the the way that you're trying to use Psalm 91, Satan, is a false way. And it needs to be corrected by what the Word of God says, which helps us to see the truth. Now, the the Psalms themselves, I mean, especially the Psalms, make it it extraordinarily clear that we will experience trouble. Uh, Even the Psalm just before Psalm 91, and as I said, it's quite possible that Moses wrote both these Psalms. Psalm 90, verse 10, it says, Our days may come to 70 years or 80. Some of you are doing even better than that. Well done. If our strength endures, yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. The best of our years are but trouble and sorrow, says Psalm 90, verse 10. Turn over to Psalm 91, verse 10, and it says, No harm will overtake you, no disaster will come near your tent. Now, both those things are true, but they need to be interpreted in the light of one another. They need to be held together. And if we interpret Psalm 91 by Scripture, what we really see is that ultimately, as all Scripture is, that ultimately Psalm 91 is about Jesus. It's about Jesus. We see that because of the way that it's used in Luke chapter 4, that Jesus didn't, come, didn't succumb to Satan's temptation. But in the end, Jesus did go to the cross. Jesus did suffer. Satan says to Jesus, Psalm 91 says, you won't even stub your toe if you jump off the temple. Jesus says, no, you don't put the Lord your God to the test. Actually, Jesus' destiny was to suffer and to die. Jesus went to the cross. But in the end, as Psalm 91 promises, Jesus was delivered and honored. That's what it says. Verse 15, he will call me, I will answer him, I will be with him in trouble, I will deliver him and honor him. That is what happened to Jesus in the end. The cross wasn't the final word. The final word was resurrection and life and honor, rescue and glory. We can see this if we put two scriptures together. Psalm 91, those verses in Isaiah 53. See how parallel these are. Isaiah 53, the 
perhaps in many ways the clearest Old Testament prophecy about what's going to happen to Jesus at the cross. And there in in Isaiah 53, it says, Yes, it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. Why did Jesus suffer? It was his Father's will that he did so. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, thank you, Jesus, the reason you suffered was an offering for sin so that we could be delivered from our sin. He will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. See how similar that is to the end of Psalm 91. He will call on me, and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. In the end, this psalm is a psalm about Jesus. The song about Jesus, that he is the one who has suffered in our place in order to deliver us from our sin. And he is the one who now is honored. And he is the one who now can bring us under the shadow of his wings. We need to know the Bible. If we're going to read the Bible, we need to know the Bible. To know the Bible, we need to know the Bible. If you're going to read Scripture, you need to read Scripture. You need to know the Bible. And then the third thing then we need to see out of this is that God really is our refuge. So what we mustn't do, we mustn't reduce Psalm 91 simply to feel good poetry. It does make you feel better if you read Psalm 91 over your breakfast. It's a great way to start the day, reading Psalm 91. But there is, it's more than just feel good poetry. There is promise of blessing to us in this psalm. There is the promise of being covered by God's feathers or God's wings. And that promise stretches backwards and forwards in the story of what God is doing for his people. And we can see this because of the way the same imagery is used in two other places in Scripture. There are two other points in Scripture where this imagery appears very powerfully. And remember, the way we interpret Scripture is by Scripture. The first of these is in the book of Ruth. Such a wonderful book. The book of Ruth, a story of rescue, a story of a... a foreign widow who comes to Bethlehem with her mother-in-law and is rescued, comes, comes out of poverty, comes out of a loss, and comes into a place of refuge and blessing. And Ruth encounters a man called Boaz who is, has the potential to be her, her redeemer. And that whole story is complex, and we've taught on Ruth before and explained that. But he has a particular responsibility and a right to be able to offer Ruth redemption, to be able to offer her rescue, to be able to offer her refuge. And, and Ruth comes to Boaz and he says to her, who are you? And she says, I am your servant, Ruth. Spread the corner of your garment. Now, in Hebrew, that's the same phrase. Spread the corner of your garment is the same phrase as spread your wings over me. It's the same as we see here in Psalm 91. The wings of Boaz are to cover Ruth. That's what she's asking for. She's asking for rescue. She's asking for redemption. She's asking for refuge. Spread your wings over me since you are a guardian redeemer of my family. Hold on to that. It's an important story. Now, it's especially important because Ruth was the great-grandmother of David, the greatest king in Israel's history. David, the great king who represents the greater king who is to come. Jesus in his human descent, descended from David, descended from Ruth. So this is a story again about Jesus. When Ruth says to Boaz, cover me with your wings, there's something going on here which points to the Messiah, to the Savior, to Jesus, the one who is going to be able to bring all his people under his wings. The second place where this 
image is used is when Jesus speaks over Jerusalem. In Matthew 23, Jesus comes into Jerusalem and he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you are not willing. Jesus uses the same phrase that we find in Psalm 91. He uses the same phrase that his ancestor Ruth used to Boaz. A covering of wings. A sheltering of God's people. Refuge, rescue, redemption. And the tragedy that Jesus sees in Jerusalem is that the people are not willing to come under that protection, come into that refuge, come into that redemption. But Psalm 91 tells us that God will bring his people under his wings. And Jesus is the one who makes that possible. And that has happened through the suffering of Christ at the cross. That imagery of a mother hen gathering her chicks is a protective picture. The mother hen covers so they're hidden. Hidden from what? Hidden from predators. And if any harm is going to be done, it's going to be done to the mother. If a hawk is going to swoop down and get something, it's going to get the mother, not the chicks. That's what the mother does. She protects her chicks. She gives her life in order to save their lives. And at the cross, this is what Jesus did for us. That as he stretched out his arms, it was like the wings of Jesus being stretched out. That he was the one who suffered. He was the one who died. He was the one who bore the weight of our sin, the penalty that we deserved in order that we wouldn't be crushed. He was crushed that we would not be. He was slain so that we would not be. He bore the wrath of God so that we would not. He rescued us by bringing us under his wings. God is our refuge. And so for us, the invitation is, are we willing like Ruth, to come under the protection of Jesus? Or are we like the people in Jerusalem in Jesus' day who refused to come under his covering and over whom Jesus wept? God is our refuge. Jesus, Jesus believed this psalm and he fulfilled it. He didn't fall for the devil's tricks. But he is the one who trampled the great lion and the serpent. Look what it says here, verse 13. You will tread on the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. Now again, we need to know our Bibles. And the Bible talks, there's two lions really in the Bible. There's the lion of the tribe of Judah. That's Jesus, the great lion. There's another lion, which the Bible tells us is the devil who prowls around looking for people to devour. The devil is described at times like a lion, looking for people to devour, people to pick off. The devil is also described in the form of a serpent. We get that right at the start of the story, of course, in the serpent who comes and tricks Eve. And we get it right at the end of the story, in Revelation, the image of the dragon. This is a, a theme that goes throughout Scripture, this satanic image of a serpent, of a dragon who will be destroyed. And here in Psalm 91 it says, "'You will tread on the lion and the cobra, you will trample the great lion and the serpent.'" Again, it's about Jesus. It's about what he will do. And Jesus at the cross got the victory. At the cross, the lion of Judah triumphed over the lion who is the devil. And at the cross, 
the one who brings us under the covering of his wings, stamped on, ser- on the serpent's head and crushed him so that we would not be crushed. Jesus has the victory. Jesus is our refuge. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely he will save you from the foulest snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his feathers and under his wings you will find refuge. Yes, we do. We come under the covering of Jesus Christ. He is the one who has delivered us. He's delivered us from the fowler's snare. Jesus didn't fall into the fowler's snare. He didn't fall into Satan's tricks and traps. And he is the one who rescues us from the enemy's tricks and traps. He's the one who delivers us from our sin. And this means whatever trouble we do experience now, we know ultimately in him we will be rescued. That he is with us in trouble. We know that we will share the honor that he has. And we will share in the life that he has. In him, we will be satisfied because he has covered us with his wings. He is our great refuge. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for this beautiful, comforting, encouraging, strengthening, optimistic psalm. And thank you, Lord, that it does point to you. Thank you, we can read this psalm, we can apply it into our own lives. Thank you, we can apply it in the troubles. Lord, sometimes those troubles are extreme. Think about Temba there in Johannesburg being shot and left for dead, but still trusting in you. Think about my friend Mark, Scott Marks at the moment, working out what it means to have this diagnosis of, of, of cancer. Well, thank you, in times like that, we can, we can lay hold of you. So you, you are our refuge. We will, come under, we will come under the shelter of your wings. So I pray that for us today, Lord. I pray for those in this room who are at this moment experiencing trouble, whatever that might be, whether it's sickness or something else. I pray there would be a, a, a running to your shelter, coming under your wings, and a confidence in what that means for us eternally. You are the God who does rescue. You are the God who does save. And the destiny of your people is to know satisfaction, eternal satisfaction of life with you. Thank you that you have crushed the serpent's head. You're the lion of Judah who has defeated the lion who is the devil. We want to run into that protection, into that love, into that assurance. Take our stand in you, our shield our ramparts. Thank you, King Jesus. Amen. I'd love to uh, just take a moment to pray for those who, hearing Matt sharing about healing has just been a real challenge for you. Uh, For me, having a a chronic lung condition, I've been through each of those 12 um, considerations, thinking, what what has it got? And, And there have been different times where I've come to God praying full of faith and there are other times where I've stayed away and other times I feel like I probably should get prayed for. I'm an elder in, elder in a church I should be believing in praying for healing but there, there are times where it's really tough um, and I'd just like to pray for God's grace because God's grace is sufficient uh, and there are times when we see God break through wonderfully 
I mean, my testimony for uh, three years ago, there was new drugs that came through. Um, and I haven't had a chest infection in three years, which is wonderful. And God moves in incredible ways. But there are also those times where we pray and we don't see things happen. And so I, I love to pray for, for grace. Um, and where I've always come to in praying for healing is to put myself in a position where I can receive God's grace. And that's what I encourage you to do. And sometimes we need people alongside us to help and to hold up our arms and our, our hands and to, to pray alongside us. And that's what I'd love to do. I'll just pray a, a prayer. If you know that you would love to receive, you can just raise your hands. Uh, I'll also be available at the end of the service if, if anyone would like to, to pray further. But just here in this moment, why we just pray? And if that's you, if you'd love to know healing, if you'd love to know more of God's grace, just raise your hands. And we, we ask, Lord God, that you come by your grace. We thank you that you're a God who can do the impossible. You're a God who is creator of all things that you know us, that you've formed us. And Lord, we do look forward to that day when Jesus returned, new heavens, new earth, we know that there will be restored bodies. But Lord, in, in this day, where there are the bodies that creak, where we have pain, where there are, are real challenges day by day, we come to you. And yes, we do ask for healing in the name of Jesus. We say, sickness, go in the name of Jesus. We proclaim your lordship in this room over every single person. And so we come with faith that we would see healing, that we will see the miraculous happen because you are a God who can do all things. And Lord, in those moments where we've come to you in prayer and the answer is not yes, it's a, a no or a not yet, Lord, we pray for grace in those moments, knowing that you are good, knowing that you never leave us or forsake us knowing that you are one who draws alongside. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are one who, who came to this earth and knows what it is to suffer, who knows what it is to, to be in pain, to know what it is to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You are a God who is alongside and we just pray now for an abundance of grace for every person who's walking with those questions of God, I don't understand. We thank you that we can come and we can trust your heart. We thank you that there's always more grace and your grace is sufficient. So we pray for everyone in this room with hands raised who want to know more of your touch and more of your strength. Let us know your nearness and give us grace for this day, we pray.